Hello and welcome to Asia-Pacific Conversations, an Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada podcast series on issues and ideas in Asia that matter and impact Canadians. On today's episode of Asia-Pacific Conversations, I'm joined in the studio by our Vice President Research and Strategy, Veena Najibula. Hello, Veena. Welcome to the studio. Hello, Mike. It's very good to be with you again. Excellent. Well, let's dive right into the topic of today's discussion, which is the public inquiry into foreign interference in federal electoral processes and democratic institutions. And this hearing kicked off on the 29th of January and concluded on February the 2nd. And this is the first part of this hearing. Can you um, share with our listeners what kind of went down on the first salvo and uh, what your takeaways were from the initial week? Absolutely, Mike. So last week's hearings were very much preliminary. They were mandated by the terms of reference of the Commission, and the focus was on national security confidentiality. So given that the Commission will be looking at very sensitive issues, most of the documentation that will be provided to the Commission from the government is uh, marked top secret. Um, So the Commission has to figure out essentially how to ensure transparency and how to meet its mandate of sharing as much information with the public as possible while also not undermining national security. So we essentially had four days of hearings from where the Commission heard from experts, from the academia, uh, former senior officials, everything from CSIS to national security advisors to the prime minister, as well as from current officials. And then, of course, there was an opportunity for questions from all the participants in the commission. And we can get into sort of who gets to ask questions and how the commission is set up. But in terms of my takeaways, because listening to the days of hearings, and and everybody could do that, which is really great. It's it's a webcast that, of course, the hearings are taking place in Ottawa, but folks across the country can uh, listen to them participate in the process from their homes. Uh, And I was one of the Canadians who did that. So in terms of key takeaways, a couple of things. Not only are the materials that the Commission has received confidential, but Canada as a whole is a net importer of intelligence, which means that this is intelligence that is provided to us by our key allies, uh, notably the U.S., Australia, U.K., and others. And therefore, even if Canadian government wanted to declassify and or share some of this, it would be very difficult for the government to do that because of something called the third-party rule, that ultimately the provider of that intelligence has the decision-making on whether or not to make it public. So that was one thing, and, and it came across very clearly. The second thing that came across really clearly, particularly from former senior officials, was the culture that permeates Canadian intelligence services, which is one of what they called over-secrecy or over-protecting and sort of this epidemic of over-classification, I think is how uh, Dick Fadden, the former CSIS director and a former national security advisor to both Prime Minister Trudeau and Prime Minister Harper said. So to me, perhaps that was the most interesting was to hear those officials reflect on the fact that Canadian security establishment tends to lean too much in overclassification and overprotection, even more so than others. And so they provided some really creative ideas for the commission to consider to be able to strike this necessary balance between protecting secrets and being transparent, because part of this whole exercise is about rebuilding trust among Canadians in the integrity of our institutions and our democratic process. 
I know the, uh, the government has, has got a few initiatives underway that are in motion outside of this hearing, and we'll get to that in, in a moment. But for our listeners, can you just back us up a little bit and tell us why was this commission struck and who are the specific parties, if you will, of interest to the hearings? Yes, that's a really good question because kind of all of this came out into the public discourse through a number of media stories and leaks from CSIS, in fact, to particularly the Globe and Mail and Global News that happened in the beginning of 2023. And for about six months, we were all sort of seeing stories, kind of increasingly more detail coming out on how, in particular, China may have interfered in the 2019 and 2021 elections here in Canada. Uh, We've also since then seen stories, of course, about the role of India. But for the most part, the stories focused on what China may have done, how they particularly may have influenced the Chinese diaspora community, either through coercion or persuasion to get them to volunteer and to vote in certain ways. And of course, there were charges that the Liberal Party may have benefited from this Chinese interference and therefore needed to be held to account. I think what's important to note is that no one disputes the outcome of these elections. Both the opposition and and all parties in Canada agree that the results of the elections are valid, so nobody's contesting that. What they are asserting that there was interference, covert and coercive perhaps, that involved not just ethnic Chinese Canadians, but efforts coordinated by the consular generals of China, so official PRC representatives here in Canada. I think those are the most serious allegations. And of course, we probably all recall sort of the the calls for this public inquiry that the government initially resisted. They stood up a a special rapporteur in the name of David Johnson, who then uh, produced the first report. But then all of that, of course, also got rejected by opposition. So after much back and forth and a lot of political and uh, public pressure, the government finally agreed to establish this commission. The terms of reference for the commission were developed over this past summer. And it is, again, important to state that all parties in Parliament agree to those terms of reference that have stood up this current public inquiry. So the government has full standing in the inquiry that was written up in the terms of reference, but Commissioner has granted opposition parties, both the Conservatives and NDP, standing in the proceedings, but not as uh, not full standing in the way that the government has. So there's a little bit of critique now that has emerged from the opposition that they don't have the same kind of access in the proceedings as the government does. So it's one thing that we'll be obviously watching in terms of how it unfolds. Excellent. And I know India was uh, was included in the, in the hearings. Would you say that was a bit of a surprise? It was a kind of a last minute uh, inclusion? Was there, um, I know China was the focus, but w- what were your thoughts on India's inclusion and also other actors, including Russia perhaps? Uh, and Iran. So the terms of reference that were struck after much negotiation in Parliament in the summer of 2023 had kind of broad language of examine and assess interference by China, Russia, and other foreign states or non-state actors. Only two weeks ago, the commissioner asked for information to be provided on India, so formally adding India to the proceedings. They have not done so with Iran, which I know a number of stakeholders, including Canadian Uh, Iranian diaspora community has been asking for that inclusion. But the fundamental focus so far has been on China. And in fact, if one looks at reporting, uh, declassified public reporting from CSIS, they have over the years, really since 2017, have said that China represents the greatest threat when it comes to foreign interference. 
You mentioned uh, diaspora communities here in Canada, which you know are sometimes on the front line of, of this foreign interference. Uh, before we get into the diaspora angle on, on this developing story, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what exactly is foreign interference uh, and how does it stack up or weigh against foreign influence? Because most right-minded Canadians are pretty much accepting that other sovereign states are going to be trying to sway Canadians one way or another, whether it's over fish farms or power projects or what have you. But this is something different. It's a little deeper, a little bit more impactful uh, on Canada and Canadians. Can you kind of take us through the difference between foreign influence and foreign interference in the context of these hearings? Everybody is in the influence business. You're absolutely right. And of course, all states engage in public diplomacy in an efforts to influence other nations. They are overt, they're open public diplomatic efforts. And they're very much legitimate, and that's not at issue, right? So what we're looking at when we say foreign interference, we're really talking about malign activities that are counter to, in this case, Canadian national interests, and they're conducted in a covert, coercive, clandestine, or threatening manner. So we're really looking at things that are, by and large, difficult to detect because they're covert, right? And they use coercion, threats, threats of violence. Some of them are illegal. Some of them are in the gray zone. So this is another challenge of addressing foreign interference because not everything that is that falls under foreign interference would be actually illegal. And that's kind of a, a legislative gap that we need to fix and that some countries are already fixing. But the fundamental difference is that these are malign activities they're not the same as legitimate public diplomacy efforts that Canada and other countries engage in. When it comes to China, it has a very particular flavor, if you will, because it's done in a quite centralized and organized way by the Chinese Communist Party, and they deploy vehicles and tools like the United Front Work Department to engage in this in a very kind of coordinated, systematic way, and particularly then targeting ethnic Chinese communities abroad. But in terms of definitions, one other thing, Mike, to note is that Different countries have slightly different definitions, and this is an emerging field. So Australia, the United States, United Kingdom, they have now a legislation that kind of governs uh, this work, and Australia in particular put that in place uh, about five years ago, so they're sort of five years ahead of us. Uh, the United Kingdom introduced legislation defining the issue and outlining how the government was going to respond to it just last year. And in Canada here, we're in the process of modernizing and amending both the legislative framework as well as administrative mechanisms to be able to properly deal with this. So maybe I, I could just take a minute and kind of note what else is happening in addition to this inquiry process that is now ongoing. Yes, I wanted to ask you about that because there are some very important developments outside of this hearing but also mm -hmm. sort of running parallel to it. Can you maybe share some of those uh, with our listeners? Yeah, so one thing that we heard a lot about last year when first uh, revelations of this interference became public is one of the tools which Australia uses, which is the Foreign Agent Registry or Foreign Agent Transparency Act. And that would allow essentially folks who are engaged in activities on behalf of governments such as China, Russia, and others to publicly declare that, to essentially register. That's bringing some transparency to this so that we actually know who might be doing that and to some extent to deter folks from potentially taking on that kind of influence activity on behalf of uh, hostile or foreign actors. 
So that is something that exists in Australia, it exists in the U.S., but we do not have one, although the government has launched public consultations. Those took place last year, and now we're waiting to see whether or not legislation will be introduced in Parliament. They've also set up a new national center, sort of a new national coordinator, if you will, in public safety to address foreign interference. This is, again, a mechanism that's also used in Australia, so you'll, you'll kind of pick up a pattern here that there are a number of things that Australia introduced about five years ago, which now we're introducing here in Canada. And I think the most important element that I would note is that there's now a growing recognition that in order to counter foreign interference, you need an informed public, that the best defense against foreign interference is enhancing citizen resilience, that having Canadians ethnic Chinese Canadians, ethnic Russian, Iranian diaspora community to be especially informed and alert to this issue, but also to have mainstream Canadians, politicians, influencers, private sector leaders to understand what is the threat of foreign interference and how to detect it, and then more importantly, how to protect themselves, how to report it, how to generate action. So that element, I think, is also why the current public inquiry is so important, because it can contribute to deepening public's understanding and knowledge of what is foreign interference and what can be done about it. And maybe in terms of what can be done about it, if I could kind of like highlight a couple of things. So there is the transparency piece, there is the legislative and administrative mechanisms, so essentially having the right legislation, having the right mechanisms like this national coordinator on foreign interference in place. And then the final issue is actually being able to generate accountability. So one thing that's currently missing in the Australian framework, which uh, has been pointed out after reviews of the, the mechanisms they've introduced, is that there hasn't been a lot of enforcement. So they have this legislation in place, but there hasn't been any cases brought forward. So the efficacy is still really in doubt. So the enforcement piece is important. And then finally, none of this can be done by each country alone. So Canada, Australia, US, UK, and other like-minded countries, while it's important for us to put in place domestic mechanisms to defend our democratic institutions and to protect our citizens, we have to also take action collectively. We have to do this through the G7, we have to do this through Five Eyes, we have to do this with our NATO uh, like-minded partners, recognizing that the threat is really challenging to address alone, and also that while we come together as democracies, we have a much better chance of being able to counter and to detect and deter this from happening. I'm getting the sense from some of your comments that maybe Canada's playing a, a little bit of a catch-up game. I, I'm not sure whether this, this hearing could be included in that catch-up game, but clearly when you talk about the legislative changes, policies, mechanisms, enforcement, we're a little bit lagging behind uh, our allies. Would, would that be a fair assessment? It would be, and I think it would be uh, important to note that that is partly the case because in general in Canada, we've had the luxury of not having to take national security seriously for many years. We've had a privileged position because our relationship as a country first with the United Kingdom and kind of the security umbrella that the UK was offering and then subsequently with the United States. So we've had this kind of unique privileged position of almost outsourcing our security to other countries. As a result, national security and security in general doesn't have a very central place in Canadian political discourse. It's something that we don't often think about as Canadians. However, given the 
changing nature of the threat environment around us, given that now we live in a much more globalized world where foreign hostile actors are able to penetrate deep within our society using modern technology and apps like WeChat, for instance. We have to have a very different approach to defending ourselves against such threats and to fortifying our democracy, our democratic institutions, and protecting people, especially vulnerable people in the diaspora community who might be at the forefront of these attacks. So I think that's the kind of the point that I would make that yes, when it comes to foreign interference, we seem to be behind, but that's because of our general lack of attention and resources devoted to national security and to addressing the changing threat environment that is now impacting Canada and Canadians. You've touched on uh, changing technology, obviously, uh, globalization, increased geopolitical tensions uh, globally. I was curious, though, for our listeners, why would someone interfere in Canada? What is the end game for a player like China or Russia or India? What is it they're after? What is it they want to see happen vis-a-vis uh, -vis this, this interference? Uh, I mean, Canada is not uniquely targeted, but we are targeted because we are an open democratic society, because we are a G7 country, because we are an important ally certainly to the United States. And countries like Russia, China, Iran, they're engaged in strategic competition for influence and for power on the global stage. And as a result, Canada is attractive. Uh, there's also another dimension, and specifically this very much applies to the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. They view uh, what they call overseas Chinese or ethnic Chinese living in other countries both as sources of potential opportunity, but also with a lot of suspicion, which is why they want to both take advantage of that community in terms of being able to influence them and then influence and exert influence in the country. But there's also a great deal of fear and suspicion that the party has about ethnic Chinese that are living overseas because they see them as potentially disruptive elements that could undermine the power of the Communist Party. So there's also that dimension of it, which we really need to be sensitive to and understand fully that there is this kind of need for control and in making sure that the Chinese Communist Party is seen as the only legitimate voice and that other voices, be that uh, human rights activists from Hong Kong or Taiwan-based actors or actors that are sympathetic to Taiwan, there is a desire to silence them, to control them, and to delegitimize them. So that's an element of kind of like managing the ethnic Chinese community. And there's some elements of that that are also important to note within the Indian diaspora community and, and policies that are now being introduced under Prime Minister Modi. Uh, and we can perhaps unpack that in, in another episode. And of course, at the end of the day, it's, it's an influence game and it's a desire to be able to advance their, in this case, Chinese or Iranian or Russian strategic objectives, which might be harmful to our national security objectives and our values and our interests. So in order to protect our sovereignty, we have to be able to fully recognize the threat, uh, have as much transparency and public understanding of it as possible, and then develop the right kind of tools, both at the level of government as well as at the level of society, to be able to address it. 
One thing that we haven't spoken about, which makes this even more challenging in a place like Canada or Australia, is federalism and the fact that a lot of this needs to also happen at provincial levels, right? That it's not all up to the federal government and hostile external actors can exploit that. They can exploit gaps that exist in enforcement and legislation because of our federal system. Excellent. And you, you touched on some of our allies and some of the legislative changes that they've made. The fact that some of this legislation and some of these policies haven't, have yet to be road tested. So I was just curious, when we come back to the hearing itself, uh, what can we expect next out of this process? How long is it going to take? What's it going to result in? And how is it going to impact the lives of everyday Canadians? Yes. So last week's hearings were preliminary really to be able to enable the commission to to deal with national security documentation. The next set of hearings will be in March, and they are meant to look at kind of the factual events of 2019 and 2021 elections. So it's called the factual phase of the commission, and there will be hearings about what exactly happened during this election, what were the forces that perhaps interfered in them from China, Russia, India, and others. So the first report of the commission will then be made public in the first week of May, May 3rd, and that's meant to capture the factual phase, again, kind of what we learned. The second phase is called the policy phase, and that will be in the fall of this year. And it will look at all of the ways in which uh, the government can protect itself and Canadians from foreign interference moving forward. So kind of reviewing what are the tools that are available, what are other countries doing, certainly our allies' countries doing in this and how to strengthen what is already in place. So again, there have been a number of things that have been introduced by the government, right? So it'll be taking stock of all of that and then making sure that will there be some other innovations. That report will come out at the end of the year. Of course, all of this will be happening in the course of 2024. And the question on everybody's mind is, will we have everything in place and clear before potentially the next election, right? Because the timing of this is now running very close to 2025, which is the latest when we would have the next election, right? So I think it's important because we do need to restore public confidence in the integrity of our democratic institutions. And we need to restore confidence that all Canadians are able to exercise their democratic rights for voting without any coercion in complete freedom. And I think there's now enough speculation out there that some Canadians are not able to exercise those rights fully and freely in accordance with their own values rather than intimidation or coercion from outside. For a country like Canada, that certainly is a concern. Thank you for for that insight. I wanted to ask you, okay, we we go through this process, the inquiry is wrapped up, um, we go into the next phase, uh, policy recommendations, reports, etc., What do you think the reaction will be if this does become kind of a damning uh, condemnation on the actions of of certain states uh, within Canada and as a threat to Canadian sovereignty? Yes, so you're absolutely right to bring out kind of the foreign policy dimension of this, that while, of course, it's critical for us to safeguard our own institutions and we have to go through this process, there will likely be some ramifications on our bilateral relations with key countries like India and China. Those have to be managed. Obviously, China so far has denied that it has had any interference activities in Canada. 
in part, the kind of allegations of foreign interference and all the media attention in 2023 on this issue did contribute to very difficult bilateral relations. Canada was an outlier among the G7 in not having high-level dialogue and meetings with the Chinese last year. We saw that the U.S., uh, U.K., Australia, other European allies all had resumed a high-level dialogue and diplomacy with China kind of post-COVID. Canada was not among those countries, in large part because of Chinese uh, reaction to the handling of this issue of foreign interference and all the media attention and the, the calling out of China publicly as having engaged in this and done this. We'll see how that will unfold in 2024. We have seen that uh, Minister Jolie and others are trying to resume those diplomatic engagements. And of course, China will be watching closely both what comes out in March, what comes out in the May 4th report, and how this issue is handled moving forward. And of course, uh, we've also seen with India that this is a key issue. And there are, again, efforts behind the scene, I think, to try to stabilize that relationship and to put it back on the right track. And of course, this process will have implications for that. But again, the issue to stress here is that we have to be able to kind of do multiple things at once, uh, walk and chew gum, if you will. We have to be able to conduct this inquiry and restore public trust in our institutions and also uh, have a public conversation about this important issue, while at the same time manage the diplomatic relations with these key actors. So these things need to happen in parallel. And I guess in terms of my own kind of observations about this, having listened to last week's proceedings is that I really hope we can actually keep public attention on this process. There is the risk of kind of boredom because these things are unfolding rather slowly. There's a lot of procedural and bureaucratic things that it kind of takes a special person to spend hours and hours listening to the proceedings. But I hope that every effort will be made to find creative ways to communicate key takeaways from the process and to engage Canadians across the country in the discussions, in the consultations. We as the Asia Pacific Foundation clearly also have a role in this, which is why we are going to be highlighting this issue in our work stream this year, producing reports, organizing events, to kind of connect the significance of this issue to everyday lives of Canadians. Thank you, Vina. So as we go through this process and we await the restoration of public trust, as you say, the public conversation is something that APF Canada is going to be involved in. Uh, we've got some major work coming out, some major analysis that we'll be seeing in the next uh, weeks and months. So our listeners can look forward to that. Um, was there anything you'd like to add, uh, Vina, on this uh, inquiry? And, and I know you told me offline that you spent 14 hours over the weekend listening to the testimony. Anything that you'd like to end on for, for our listeners on this topic? Yeah, maybe one thing that needs to be underscored is that we have to be able to combat foreign interference and address this issue in a way that does not demonize or generate racist sentiments against uh, communities of, of certain ethnicities here in Canada. We have to be able to fight this without creating conditions that would further marginalize those groups. I think that's an important thing, and that's certainly something that we here at the Foundation are very much committed to. And I think this conversation makes certain communities a little nervous. I mean, I, I know for a fact 
that some communities are nervous that this would lead to further demonization and scapegoating and targeting of diaspora communities. I think it would be really critical for all of us to have this conversation in a nuanced way and to separate activities of state actors and, for instance, Chinese Communist Party from uh, Chinese Canadians, uh, again, recognizing that they're often uh, the first victims of that system. Thank you, Vina. I think that's an important note to end this conversation on today. For our listeners, this is Asia-Pacific Conversations, our weekly podcast series from the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. My name is Mike Roberts, and I'm the Communications Director at APFC. We've been talking today about Canada's public inquiry into foreign interference in federal electoral processes and democratic processes. My guest in the studio is Vina Najibula, our Vice President of Research and Strategy. Be sure to keep an eye on our website, www.asiapacific.ca. We have a number of explainers, dispatches, policy briefs that will be looking at this issue as it unfolds and the inquiry continues in the coming weeks and months. And be sure to visit our website to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, Asia Watch, featuring news and ideas in Asia that matter and impact Canadians. Thanks for listening. We will see you for the next episode of Asia Pacific Conversations.